Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 18th, 2018, and this is show number 706. Well, this week, Dave Ginsburg of the In Touch with iOS podcast over at InTouchWithIOS.com joined me for a chit-chat. But when we were done recording, we both decided it was dreadful. I believe the exact words Dave used was train wreck. The topic was all wrong. It didn't work out at all like we'd expected. We struggled with what to do about it. Like, we just finished this recording. We put all this time into it. Should we just post something neither of us were proud of? Well, the good news is we came up with a new topic and we did a whole new recording. In this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light, Dave gives us his top 20 iOS tips. It was a lot of fun, and Dave specializes in iOS, so he knows way more than I do about it. And I think I know a lot, but I learned a ton from him. I do want to make a correction before you listen. We inadvertently said that all iPhones now swipe down from the top right to get to Control Center. That's true of all iPads. They did switch them over, but the Touch ID iPhones still do swipe up to get to Control Center. Thanks to Steve Davidson for being the first of many to point this out to us. In any case, I hope you'll have fun with Dave's top 20 tips for iOS and learn as much as I did. You can find this episode in your podcatcher of choice under Chit Chat Across the Pond or Chit Chat Across the Pond Light or over at podfeed.com. You can find episode number 572. Last week, I was positively knackered when I did the show. Uh, you may have noticed that I didn't have my usual vim and vigor. Anyway, we'd just done a five and a half mile hike with Steve's sister and her husband, and for some reason, we sort of forgot to eat very much. I was going to give you the following review, but I positively did not have a single ounce of energy left to do it. The live show audience noticed my utter exhaustion, and Kevin said, It's okay, Allison. Save it. I was so relieved when he said that. Like, I mean, I know I don't need your permission, but I feel this strong commitment to you guys, and I didn't want to leave you guys short. In any case... Let's finally get this show on the road. In July of 2017, I told you about a really cool suite of utilities called Parallels Toolbox from the same people that bring us the virtual machine software Parallels Desktop. I walked through all of the apps it includes and then explained that it's a subscription service, but that it's only $20 a year. Might have been cheaper back then, but it is $20 a year now. They promised with that subscription that they would keep adding utilities to the toolbox and I have to say, they have kept their promise. It's been over a year, so I thought it'd be fun to tell you about the new tools they've added. As before, remember that very few of these tools are actually unique, but they're all piled together in a consistent and easy-to-access interface. Before I tell you about the new tools, let's review very quickly the tools that were already available in 2017. There was Eject Volumes that lets you eject all mounted volumes in one step. There's an Archiver on Archiver. Archiver Unarchiver, kind of a limited tool for the job. There was a uh, camera option, which allowed you to take a picture, record video with any embedded or attached camera, and to disable access to the camera for security. That's pretty cool. There's a screenshot uh, application, a screen recording application, named timers, uh, airplane mode, just like we have natively on iOS. You can turn off all your radios on your on your Mac, which is pretty cool. There's uh, an ability to download video from the web, capture audio from an online source, like from an, a YouTube video. A really good do not disturb function does more than native do not disturb on Mac OS. It stops alerts, but it also stops the dock icons from bouncing. There's do not sleep, which is great when you need your Mac to stay awake. 
They've got a hide desktop for those messy people who sometimes need to show their desktop to others. It just basically takes everything off the desktop and then puts it all back when you're done. Uh, launch allows you to launch multiple applications in one click. There's a lock screen option. You can mute your microphone, just like blocking the camera. No apps can bypass it. It mutes the microphone. Presentation mode, which I happen to be running right now while I'm doing the live show. It disables sleep, hides files on the desktop, blocks all notifications and dock animations. There's switch screen recording or screen resolution, I should say, which I use all the time and the ability to simply record audio. Okay. As I said back last year, even without added utilities, that's a lot for 20 bucks a year. Now let's talk about the new tools. A while ago, the folks at Parallels added an option, an option called Clean Drive. Unlike the other apps that have to be invoked, Clean Drive pops up from time to time saying, Hey, I found all these gigabytes lying around. Want I should toss them for you? Well, most of the time, I choose to ignore Clean Drive, but once in a while, I pay attention to it. You can turn these warnings off, by the way, if you don't like them, by using the gear on Clean Drive to uncheck the Remind to Clean Drive checkbox. It explains that it will alert you at any time at least two gigabytes can be freed up. Well, as of when I wrote this up, it was showing over 14 gigabytes of cache files and 1.4 gigabytes in the trash. Now, I'm not entirely sure deleting cache files matters that much because they seem to very quickly grow back. They get created to speed things up, so I'm not sure it really makes a lot of point of deleting them. Trash, on the other hand, is something I simply forget about all the time. I mean, Steve empties the trash for me at home. I guess that's why I forget to do it on my own desktop. Anyway, that warning is super useful to me in CleanDrive. CleanDrive also looks for log files, browser data, mail cache, mobile apps, iTunes temp files, iOS device backups, and old updates. Mail cache, mobile apps, iOS device backups, and old updates are all showing zero gigabytes for me and are not able to be checked. Either I simply don't have any of those files, which is possible since I just did a clean install, or there's some kind of trick to getting them to be selectable. I haven't backed up any of my iOS devices to this Mac yet, but I can't imagine that I don't have some kind of mail cache flies lying around, right? Well, if you're curious about the directories CleanDrive is looking for at for these supposedly deletable files, I found a forum thread where Dimitri from Parallels gave full details on each one over at forum.parallels.com. I am not endorsing deleting your files, but I have allowed CleanDrive to selectively clean up after me using the little checkboxes, and I have not suffered ill effects. CleanDrive has one more trick up its sleeve. At the bottom of the window, it has a link to show large files. This will give you a finder window with a large file save search. This is something you can do yourself using filters on finder searches, but CleanDrive throws it right in there for you. Next one up. Let's see. I don't know about you, but I am able to create duplicates on my drive without even trying. I don't know if they take up a lot of space overall, but my files seem to replicate like bunnies. Parallels Toolbox includes a utility called Find Duplicates. You simply drag a directory onto the Find Duplicates floating window to have it scanned for duplicates. It's pretty snappy at the job. I pointed it at my 28 gigabyte documents folder and it came back really quickly. The first few files it found were pretty tiny, so I was glad to see a drop-down menu where I could choose to sort by size. There's really no reason, other than extreme OCD, to go hunting down duplicate 12-kilobyte text documents or worse yet, 750-byte PHP files left lying around on your drive. I have a lot of those. When you select a duplicate file shown in the left column, you get a preview of the file in the main window. You can view images, play videos and audio files, and see text in text documents. 
Below the preview, you see a list of duplicate files, hopefully, hopefully only two, showing the location on your drive of each file. From there, you can click the magnifying glass to reveal the file in your finder. At the very bottom of the window, it shows you the total size of the duplicate files, so twice if you have two of the same thing, three times if you have three, and on up. And once you've decided which one you want to keep, you can check the box next to the other one and move to trash. Even with the vast amount of memory we have in our Macs now, we do sometimes get apps misbehaving and taking up more memory than we would like. Free memory from Parallel's toolbox might be able to help. It lists app memory, wired memory, compressed memory, and available memory. At the bottom of the window, it shows icons for the applications that are taking up significant memory. I don't know a lot about this subject, so please draw your own conclusions on what this actually does. I started my test with 3.88 gigabytes of available memory with Safari, MarsEdit, Photos, Messages, and Slack taking up significant usage. I checked the box that said free memory, and when I was done, it had, actually, I should change the emphasis there. I checked the box that said free memory, and when I was done, it had gone from 3.88 gigabytes to 6.22 gigabytes. The apps taking significant memory were exactly in the same order. Free memory recovered 1.25 gigabytes from the apps I was running and 1.3 gigabytes from compressed memory and just shaved a hair off of wired memory. Now, Apple has a support article that explains that compressed memory is memory in RAM that is compressed to make more RAM available to other processes. Like I said up front, I do not understand this topic very well, so I'm not sure why RAM that's compressed to leave more available to other processes would be good for this app to free up for us. Perhaps there's a Nocellacastway out there who knows more about I do and can educate me on this. I have to say that in the time I've been de- I've been describing this, the free memory dropped from 6.22 gigabytes to 5.26 gigabytes, so maybe this is a tool to only use in emergency situations. Our Macs have hidden files on them that we don't need to see most of the time. But sometimes you really do need to see those hidden files. You can open a terminal window and enter a defaults write command, or you can simply hold down command shift dot or period. But for the life of me, I can never remember that keystroke when I need it. I have to look it up every time. If you've got Parallels Toolbox installed, simply select hidden files from the toolbox and you'll be able to see them. Select it again and they'll be gone again. Does one thing and does it well. Well, maybe I'm a bit old, but this whole animated GIF thing seems a bit annoying to me. Maybe I'm too easily distracted, but a a GIF going off in my peripheral vision from a text message thread drives me bonkers. In fact, it's one of the reasons I like Telegram so much. If someone sends me an animated GIF, I can delete it just for me and they'll never know I did it so their feelings won't be hurt. But if you're one of those crazy kids that loves them, Parallels Toolbox will help you create them with their Make GIF app. If you flip the tool over with the gear icon, you can choose the size you want to make it from small, medium, or large, and you can set the frame rate from an annoying 5 frames per second to 15 frames per second or a civilized 24 frames per second. You can also choose a saved location for the resultant file. After you drag a file onto the floating window for Make GIF, you get a bunch of controls. You can see the movie timeline and drag both ends to capture the perfect sequence, but you can also choose to have it only play forward, only play backward, or bounce back and forth. You can add a text caption, changing the size and color, but not the font. I'm afraid that the font chosen does not conform to animated GIF standards for memes, but perhaps we can ask for that in a bug report. I made a GIF of Steve dancing at breakfast with our grandson Forbes, and of course now I am completely in love with GIFs. Let me know if you want me to send it to you. 
All right. Well, there are as many ways to resize images on a Mac as Carter ever had little liver pills. But if you don't want to dig around looking for a way to do it, hint, it's a built-in service on Mac OS, you'll find a resize image tool inside Parallels Toolbox. Drag an image or images onto the floating window, and you'll see several options down the right-hand side. You can keep the format the same as the original or convert it to any of the usual suspects, JPEG, PNG, TIFF, or HEIC. Below that, you can choose the width and height, and by default, they're locked to the aspect ratio that's going to be preserved. Resize Image automatically creates a folder on your desktop called Converted Images with a date and time stamp that contains your resized images. If you resize a group of images, you can still change their format and set the width or height or both, and you'll be shown the resulting size of the group of images. I converted four JPEGs and two PNGs to HEIC without changing the dimensions, and the resultant group of photos had shrunk in size from 7.5 megabytes down to 4.2 megabytes. I guess they don't call it high efficiency for nothing. I did some pixel peeping on a couple of the images, and I could not see any degradation in the images, even though I had saved 22% in file size. So maybe using resize images from within Parallels Toolbox is a cooler way than using the built-in tools to resize images after all. Plus, it's right there in your toolbox already. Now, I don't know about you, but time zones make my head hurt. For years, I've been using a little dashboard app called Time Scroller to figure out whether Mariana New Zealand is awake or to check to see if Bart and I are eight hours or seven hours apart on a given day near a time change. Even when I'm talking to the East Coast of the U.S., I double check to make sure I don't add three hours when I should have subtracted. Parallels added a world time clock to the toolbox. When enabled, you'll see the world time icon in your menu bar and you can simply tap it to see what time it is in different locations. It's a pretty simple setup. When it opens, you search for a city or a country, and it'll give you a drop-down of matches it has found. When you make a selection, it shows the name of the city, country, what day it is, yesterday, tomorrow, or today. Trust me, that does happen. Anyway, then it follows that by how many hours away they are from you, plus or minus, and then the local time. You can keep adding cities in this list. At the bottom of the same setup menu, you can choose how the times are shown in the menu bar. If you're a minimalist, you can have just the world time icon. But maybe there's one location you always want to be able to see, like, say, Dublin for me. You can select icon and time for the selected location. It doesn't tell you which location you've shown, just the time. So you got to remember whose time you always keep up there. Finally, you can take up a lot of menu bar space by selecting name and time for the selected location. Instead of seeing 7.11 p.m. after the icon, I can see Dublin, 7.11 p.m. without the icon. I'm going with a minimalistic approach because menu bar real estate is so valuable. I can live with clicking to see the list of locations without a default shown. I have to say, though, that I still will probably use Time Scroller, even though it's using an ancient technology of dashboard. It does one thing that nothing else seems to do. It lets you scroll through to see what time it will be at another location. So I can see if I want to meet Bart at 10.30 a.m. my time zone, what time will it be at his house? They haven't killed off dashboard apps just yet, so I'll keep using it until they do. The developer was in college when he wrote this, and he's a grown-up man now, and he promised me a while ago that he'd rewrite it for the modern world someday. Maybe he'll need to do it sooner rather than later. Uninstalling apps on a Mac is as simple as dragging them to the trash. But if you do it that way, you're leaving all kinds of ancillary files lying around in your operating system, potentially creating problems for yourself later. If you want to clean up after your apps, you can use an app like AppDelete or AppZapper. Now you have another option. Uninstall apps from Parallels Toolbox. 
When you launch Uninstall Apps, it scans your applications folder and lists them down the left sidebar. Get a search window to quickly find the one you want to uninstall. Next to the search window, there's a drop-down menu that defaults to Apps, but there's also an option to find Leftovers. When I selected Leftovers, it found three folders in my user library with saved application states in them, one each for Dropbox, Hindenburg, and Mozilla. I'm not sure if these are really leftovers, but I would presume it doesn't hurt anything to clean them up. I wish it would let me view in Finder, but the only option is to clean. I cleaned up the Mozilla files, and as soon as it was done, I had a restore option, so you can back out. Back on the apps option, I decided it's safe to delete the Duet app, since it doesn't run properly anymore on modern machines. Selecting it from the list, it shows me all of the files it found and their locations. It's a great example of how much crud apps leave behind. There were four files from my user library, caches, preferences, and log files. They're only taking up, you know, kilobytes of space. Why not clean them up while I can? Well, let's go bottom line here. Coincidentally, with me working through all of the new apps that have been added to the Parallels Toolbox in last year, MacRumors published a shorter article about it too. They caught a couple of things I hadn't noticed, including support for some features in Mojave. I'm not going to report their, or repeat their work, I should say, but I'll leave that reading to the student for later. There's a link in the show notes. One thing I did notice is there's a preference now in Parallels Toolbox that I hadn't noticed before that lets you hide individual tools. This is going to become valuable as they add more and more tools, sort of like putting that weird pentalobe screwdriver in the bottom drawer instead of the top. I don't need to cluttering things up until I really need it. Bottom line is that when I, while I love Parallels Toolbox when I first discovered it, they have really come through with some fantastic new tools, making my $20 per year subscription absolutely worth the money. One of my favorite sports is trying to point out where geek friends of mine made a mistake or perhaps didn't know something I knew about. I know it's childish, but I really, truly enjoy it. Ask Dave Hamilton. He loves it when I do it. Anyway, one of the people I enjoy torturing most is Don McAllister. I think it's because he's so amazing and he finds all these tricks and things I would never find in a million years, so catching him out is the best fun. I was watching his iOS 12 tutorial on Screencast Online, and he was demonstrating some features using an iPad. In the tutorial, he explained that now with iOS, you can tap and hold on the space bar and the keyboard will magically turn into a trackpad, allowing you to easily slide around to move the insertion point in text. As I was watching, I thought, poor Don, he doesn't know that you've been able to turn the iPad keyboard into a trackpad for ages. All you have to do is use two fingers on the keyboard anywhere, and it suddenly turns into a trackpad. You don't have to be on the space bar like he thought. For some reason, I procrastinated on making fun of him, which is so not like me. Then I heard on a podcast some people talking about the loss of 3D touch in the future. Not sure if that's a rumor or a fact. I'm not sure what's going on. Anyway, someone on the show referred to how useful it is to use 3D Touch to move the cursor and insertion point on iOS. Personally, I hate using 3D Touch to move my cursor around on my iPhone. It works and it moves the cursor to the right spot as I direct it, but when I let go, the cursor jumps at least a full word away from where I left it. I try really hard not to jiggle as I move my finger away, but whatever I do, the cursor is never where I want it. But then I got this little niggle in the back of my brain. What if Don was actually onto something? What if there was a change to iOS that let you turn the keyboard into a trackpad by gently holding on the spacebar? More importantly, what if it worked on the iPhone, not just the iPad? 
Would I be able to abandon one of the only uses I found for 3D Touch? Well, guess what? In iOS 12, on iPad, and iPhone, if you simply tap and hold on the spacebar, you get a stress-free, gentle way to move the insertion point to exactly where you want it. And there isn't a violent letting go that shifts things away. You can tell if you're doing it right if, as you hold down on the spacebar, all of the letters on the, key, uh, on the keys disappear and the whole keyboard turns gray. Then gently start sliding around. So, yeah, Don was right, but don't tell him, okay? Let's keep this tiny tip between us. Well, it's getting to be the holiday season with the Black Friday sales already in full swing a full week before the actual Friday. As you go about your shopping, you may find some Amazon affiliate links on podfeet.com to to, uh, products we've talked about. If you use those links to make your purchase, a small percentage of the cost of the item will come to help defer the cost of creating the Podfeet podcast. If you buy right after clicking the links, anything else in that same session will also go to help the show. Every little bit helps, and I really appreciate all of you who use this method to help us keep the show going. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's one of my favorite times of the week. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchatz. What's going on today, Bart? Oh, my goodness me, is there much going on? Um, Kind of an odd show, actually. It's pretty much all sort of chunky stories and then a quick rundown of some other stuff, I think. Most okay. of it's follow-up. Well, so there are stories we've met before that we're, we're sort of meeting again because they've, they've had more happen. Okay, well, that sounds fun. I, I don't know if you heard uh, that I was on macOS Ken this week. I most certainly did. A thoroughly enjoyable interview, um, <laughs> a conversation, really. Um, I, I enjoyed it. Um, although I don't think myself and Ken are quite on the same page when it comes to setting hair on fire. <laughs> well, that's why I was bringing it up uh, for anybody who hasn't heard it. He, um, I, I was explaining what the security bit segment was to him, and I said, you know, Bart tells us whether to light our hair on fire. And he said, from his experience working with Secure Mac, he thinks the answer is yes. <laughs> Simply yeah, he yes, just, always. He didn't get the point of this segment at all, really. And usually <laughs> myself and Ken see eye to eye and everything. But no, we, we definitely don't see eye to eye on this one. There's no need to set your hair on fire. Fire extinguishers at the ready. Right, just in case. Well, I, th- I think he'd have to listen to it to actually get the, uh, get the hang of it, you know. That's true. Yes. All right. Well, on that note, we should get uh, get started then. Okay, we'll start nice and easy. Um, that Windows 10 fall update that was out and in and out again. Well, it's out again. Um, so that was the one that deleted files for some people in some very specific situations. It wasn't particularly widespread. But when you have a percent of a percent of people having file deletions and you have millions and millions of customers, that's still a lot of people. Yeah, millions, a high percentage, or a small percentage is a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, so well, basically... So now Microsoft they've fixed have, it, right? They have fixed it, so the the, the full, the, the Windows 10, 20, ugh, the Windows 10 2018 fall update is finally out. Pretty much winter now, but anyway, still calling <laughs> it the fall update. Now, if you were running Windows, would you wait a little bit just to see? Maybe a couple days? No. <laughs> oh, okay. No, because... This was a bug that only affected people who did dumb things. Oh. Basically, try sw- basically, it's people who tried to swim upstream. So Windows has this concept of certain folders being special, your documents folder, your photos folder, those kind of things. Uh, 
And you can remap those, which is fantastic. So if you have an external, if you have two hard drives in your tower and you want to have all of your big chunky stuff on a big slow hard drive and have your OS on a fast one, you simply put a folder onto the slow drive and tell Windows, use this as my documents folder. Okay. And some people would do that and also save files in the default location as well. Mm. And it's those files in the default location that got deleted. So basically, Windows assumed that if you had told it to use something else as your documents folder, then it was fine to go and stomp on the original default location. And I'm thinking, okay. what kind of an idiot put does that? So no, I don't. I, I don't think I would have held off on this one. I probably would have. People actually, who don't understand, maybe not idiots. No, there were power <laughs> users who were trying to do something weird, and whenever you start swimming upstream, bad stuff happens. Yes, yeah. so that's my general rule on computing, and I used to be—I used to be the master of finding the workaround, until mm-hmm. I realized it was massively time-consuming and utterly futile because you always lose. Yeah, you, you cannot stop time; just go with the flow, and you will have a much happier life. So that's <laughs> been my new motto. It goes for lots I of think things. So. Um. All right, Spectre and Meltdown. This—we said that this would be the story that didn't stop giving. Well. Yet again, proven correct, it is continuing to give. Seven more variants have been published. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, some of these variants are already protected against by existing mitigations. Some are not. Um, I I sort of picked what I think is the most salient summary from a very good write-up on Irish Technica. A research team including many of the original researchers behind Meltdown and Spectre and the related foreshadow and branch scope attacks, has published a new paper describing yet more attacks in the Spectre and Meltdown families. The results? Seven new possible attacks. Some are mitigated by known mitigation techniques, but others not. That means further work is required to safeguard vulnerable systems. Now, from a home user point of view, we have to remember what it is that these this entire family, this is now an extended family, this is a very, very large family, <laughs> a very Catholic family, one could say, of vulnerabilities, right? Remember what they do. They allow one process on your computer to see things belonging to another process on your computer that they shouldn't be allowed to see. Now, for a home user, that is only of use to malware that is already running on your PC. Well, you already have malware running on your PC. So for you as a home user, this is not a big deal. Where this is a gigantic mega uber big deal is if you are a provider of some sort of cloud computing functionality. Because in cloud computing, different virtual machines are sharing the same computer. Which means that if a process on, you know, running your finance system can be spied on by some hacker's process, that's a problem. So this is something for the IT people to worry about. This is something for people who are paid a lot of money to worry about these things to worry about. This is not something for home users to worry about beyond our one salient piece of advice. Stay patched. If And that's even as a home user, that isn't going to keep you safe from Spectre Meltdown if your service provider's not staying patched. Patch them, right, right, but you can't do anything about that. So we don't stress about things that you literally that you literally can do nothing about it. You can't even know if there's a problem, right? You just have to assume that people like Amazon are on the ball here. And I don't think that's right. unreasonable. 
I, I would like to give a shout out on the state patch and say secure to my sister-in-law, Elaine. We went out to visit them this last weekend out in Phoenix. And while I was talking to her, an update came up on screen and she swiped it away. And I said, mm. what are you doing? And she said, well, I told it to do it tonight. And I said, are you sure? She goes, yes. Because the last time you saw me, you yelled at me because I had a bunch of stuff that some patches I hadn't done. <laughs> and I have always done them ever since. Yay. And I was like, oh, yay. And then later on, she was on her PC. And I said, what about your PC? She said, absolutely. I do it immediately. You told me, stay patched. And I said, all right. Somebody, one person's listening so far that we know of. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, there's, there's always value in more awareness. So, yeah. yeah. Hey. Uh, follow up number three. We did... It's a while ago now, and I might ask you, I'm going to be very cheeky here and say, Alison, could you do my homework and look up the link to our deep dive into DNS providers and stick it in oh, the show yes. notes? Okay. Also, for some reason, my link list is broken in the show notes. I think this should be the new line character between the colon and the first star. Anyway. Okay. Cloudflare are the people behind the 1.1.1.1 DNS resolvers, and they are uh, privacy-focused resolvers. They are audited by an external auditing company to verify that they do indeed not log anything in you, so on and so forth. They also support modern ways of encrypting DNS. So the DNS protocol is old, and as with the other old protocols like Telnet and FTP and SMTP, it doesn't do encryption, which means that if you go to an HTTPS website, your actual interaction with the website is encrypted by HTTPS, But before your browser could start that encrypted conversation, your browser sent out a completely plain text DNS query saying, please give me the IP address that matches this domain name. So anyone watching your traffic will immediately, they won't know what you said to a website, but they will know exactly where you went because of your DNS queries. They also have the power to intercept your DNS queries because, of course, they're completely unencrypted and, and undigitally signed and unsecured in any way. So DNS, not good. So there are... A couple of competing modern updates to the DNS standards to actually retrofit some security onto DNS. And one of those is DNS over over TLS. Uh, I think there's DNS over HTTPS as well. And basically, being, you know, the cool guys cloud for R, they have implemented both of the current front runners in this game on their 1.1.1.1. But you need to have a client that's capable of actually talking these new protocols to make use of this. And that's not straightforward. So you could download the beta software from GitHub, compile it, and run it on your own Mac. But that doesn't sound like something a lot of people can do. And it's certainly not going to help you on iOS or Android. I guess on Android you could compile your own, but on iOS it's certainly not going to help. So the people on Cloudflare had a genius idea. There exists in iOS and on Android a collection of APIs whose job in life is to make it possible for apps to provide VPN functionality. And a part of VPN functionality is controlling DNS. So they have written apps which use the VPN API, but they only change your DNS settings and route your DNS through their secured DNS over HTTPS. Oh, so you're not actually running a VPN. It looks like you are. VPN profile API? Exactly. So they have created a VPN profile, and that profile says route no traffic through a VPN, but route all DNS through us. Huh. So that will obfuscate your DNS? That will give you properly secured DNS. So all of your DNS queries coming from your device are now secured. 
And it's really easy to do. You just install the app and away you go, right? So it's trivially easy for people to do. Now, it swings in roundabouts, right? So on the one hand, really easy to do. So that is a definite massive plus. On the other hand, you can only have one active VPN profile at a time. So you cannot Mm. use a real VPN and this app at the same time. Now, arguably, a real VPN will protect your DNS traffic for the first mile anyway, because it's you're going to be in a tunnel out as far as your VPN provider. But right. the downside is once you leave your VPN provider, your DNS is unencrypted again. But the worst danger is always that first mile, you know, those people sitting around you. So it, it's not a huge downside, but it's just something to bear in mind that it is a downside. And the other thing is because they're using the VPN APIs, the icons on your phone will show as if you're running a VPN, which may, what if you icons? don't understand what's going on, make you think that you're on a full VPN, whereas in actual fact, you're not. What do you mean the icons? What icons will change? Uh, you know the way when you enable a VPN on iOS, it puts up a thing in your menu bar. I think it changes the color of the VPN icon. Um, well, it actually barely sneaks up for a split second and then disappears. You have to swipe down to control center to see that you're on your VPN now. Okay, well, basically it will behave exactly... It will do whatever... A VPN app does, and that goes for Android too. So depending on your version okay. of the OS, it will behave like a VPN, but it isn't really a VPN, which is potentially so, slightly confusing. So they're the only two downsides, right. but it's actually extremely clever. I, I'm, but I'm if you've right. actively done this, so if you run you have, yeah. the, the Cloudflare, Cloudflare app, if you run that, and then, then you need to use your VPN, does it disable that app or... How do the two, or, or does the app, is the whole, app's whole job to, to install that profile and nothing else? Right, the app is a VPN, so the app will behave like Cloak does or whatever, right? So Cloak is mm-hmm. a VPN profile app, so this is a... They changed their name, by the way, to Encrypt.me, but anyway. Oh, it's a terrible name. Cloak was so much cooler. It was, but it's Encrypt.me. It's not bad. Eh, yeah, but Cloak was cooler. Anyway, yeah, okay, <laughs> I'm a stick in the mud. But it, it, yeah, so it, it, it behaves like any other VPN app in terms of, you know, they're all just VPN profiles. So it, it behaves in the same way. So, well, a VPN only kicks in when you're on an unknown network. It has a lot of other information. The cloud, the, uh, sorry, the um, encrypt.me one does. Uh, this would just do it all the time. If you turn, while you turn it on, it will be on, and while you turn it off, it will be off. So I've never used Encrypt.me. I've always used OpenVPN because that's what we okay. that's what we use in work. And then I go to the VPN, I go to Control Center, I click turn on on the VPN, and then I'm on the VPN, and I click turn off, and I'm off the VPN. In this case, okay. I click turn on, and the DNS routing would be on, and I turn it off, and it would be off. Why would you turn it off? Why not just run it all the time? Well, you wouldn't, but I'm just saying it behaves like a VPN. The point I'm trying to make is it behaves like if you install OpenVPN or whatever it is okay. using those APIs, it behaves like a VPN. It's just a VPN with a difference. It's, hmm. I mean, all VPNs, right? So people think that a VPN encrypts all of your traffic, but that's not true at all. A VPN c- encrypts whatever traffic it's configured to encrypt. And a subset of VPNs are VPNs designed to help people in coffee shops surf the web safely. And that subset of VPNs gets conflated with the very concept of VPNs. There's a whole other class of VPNs, which are your corporate VPNs, and their job is to teleport you safely into the office. And so right. when I enable my work VPN, the rules for that VPN are all traffic not to work goes directly through the internet as if the VPN wasn't there. Only traffic to work goes through the VPN. Oh, oh, okay. 
and that's completely normal for VPNs to choose what goes in and what goes out. It's just because the most common usage is stuff like Encrypt.me, which is designed to to get everything through the VPN for the first mile, people think that VPNs always encrypt all of your traffic. And that's just not true of VPNs in the general case. Okay. And so this so is a very special case. we all case. go run and install this, right? But that's only going to work on uh, iOS and maybe Android? Yeah. iOS and Android, yeah. So these are mobile apps, yeah. Okay. And yeah, they did one for both. So it's an iOS app and an but, Android But app. there's nothing for the desktop. So if you take your laptop out... Yes, at the moment there isn't. But I think there are browser extensions. Chrome certainly supports it in the browser. And I think Firefox either does or is about to. Okay. So if it isn't in the browsers just yet, it will be very, very shortly. It's definitely already in the betas that developers are playing with and has been for months. So it may or may not be there in the real ones. I haven't checked checked up lately. But it's on all of the roadmaps. Okay, cool. Of course, we have no idea what's coming in Safari because Apple don't believe in roadmaps. <laughs> Insert joke about maps well, up here. They don't in, in public roadmaps, right? Yes, yes, absolutely, of course. <laughs> All right. Uh, we talked last time about Apple's T2 security chip, and we need to revisit it. And first off, we need to eat a little bit of humble pie. Um, Uh-oh. We said something which we were by no means alone in saying. Half the internet was saying the same thing. However, the fact that something is said a lot doesn't make it true. Uh-oh. So we said that the T2 chip does hardware disconnect on microphones. That is not a true statement. What oh. Apple's documentation actually said was that all of their laptops that have a T2 chip have a hardware disconnect. They didn't say the T2 was doing the disconnect. They just said that if you have a T2, you have a hardware disconnect. They're two physically actually, different I, things. I think you said that. I think you said... Did I say being that? Infer- yeah, you said it's being inferred but they didn't actually say it, so we don't really know. If yeah, I'm I don't smart enough to, to say that, then well done me, but I thought I got it wrong. <laughs> either that or somebody else smart said that to me, and it'd either be you or Tom Merritt, so I don't know. But uh, I'm going to okay. credit Tom on this. because <laughs> You don't remember being that smart. I okay. don't think, I, I remember going to myself, basically I remember finding out the exact wording and the implication of it, I think from Tom, actually. I think it was on... Um, uh, DTNS and I remember going well great we recorded less than 24 hours ago and now I have to remember to make a correction so I'm, I am pretty sure I got it wrong <laughs> okay alright so so back to what the actual thing is is that we said the T2 chip causes the hardware switch to flip but it's just saying if it has a T2 switch then the hardware switch will flip for the uh, to turn off the mic when you close the lid let me rephrase that again if your laptop has a T2 chip it also has a physical disconnect on the microphone but we don't know, is it still possible the T2 chip does it? Well, no, because we it, just it's a know? physical chip, so it actually makes no sense. It was always a weird thing to have the chip do a physical disconnect. It always sounded a bit weird. And the more you th- the more I think about it, the more it's like, no, they're just, they're just two true statements that have nothing to do with each other. It's just like, <laughs> this laptop has this, and this laptop has this. It doesn't mean that one does the other. Maybe the magnet does it. I mean, it would need... It, it, it probably would make much more sense for it to be sitting in a hinge or something. I mean, this is the whole point of this switch is that it's hardware. It has no software, no brains, nothing to go wrong. It's a physical disconnect. So why would right. you put a physical disconnect into a silicon chip? Because then it could be hacked, right? Right, exactly. So the whole point is it's not in any way 
electronic. It's physical. Oh, you know what's going to happen? Somebody's going to come up with a thing where you put the laptop in the freezer. <laughs> and it'll freeze the switch in place. Yes. <laughs> but if you have access to the laptop to the point where you can put it in the freezer, you also have access to the point where you can open the lid. Oh, the thing being <laughs> the thing being defended against is, you know, you surf to a malicious website that gets arbitrary code execution and now they turn on your mic. That won't stop people from putting it into the freezer and announcing that they've def- uh, defeated this, though. <laughs> oh, of course not. Sorry. Clickbait versus reality. Yes, 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 yes. Anyway, so that's the correction. But now we also have to... There's been other news about the T2 chip. Now, to me, none of this is really news. To me, this is all, well, of course... But nonetheless, many, many headlines were written and much screaming was done, much wringing of hands. So now let's actually look at the actual T2 chip. So its job in life is not to physically disconnect the microphone. Its job in life is to do all sorts of cool crypto stuff. Um, And two of its primary features in that regard, or among its primary features, I'm feeling like Monty Python here. Um, But its job is to do hardware disk encryption and also to physically store encryption keys in such a way that you can't suck them out and also to physically protect your biometrics for Touch ID. You do not have Touch ID without an equivalent of the T2 chip. On iOS, that's a secure enclave. That's part of the A series. And because Apple still use Intel chips for now, they have to put the secure enclave on something separate, and that's the T2 chip. So it's really there as a cryptographic workhorse. Uh, Another thing, then, that's a very important feature it does is something called Secure Boot. Uh, The idea of Secure Boot is that the device that has Secure Boot enabled will not boot an OS that does not pass digital signature verification. And Windows has had this for a while, correct? Correct, yes. This is not an Apple-only thing. Right, by no means. iOS was very early to the game, but Windows does it. And now that Apple have this hardware, they can do it extremely securely on their new laptops. And okay. uh, the Mac Pro has had it since the, you know, so the iMac Pro has had it since the iMac Pro came out. Um, I'm sure the new Mac Pro will have it whenever that finally surfaces, and the new Mac Minis have it. Now, a it's not even a side effect. The actual effect of this feature is that you can only boot a cryptographically signed OS. Linux is not cryptographically signed by Apple, so you can't boot Linux. Or at least you can't out of the box. You can log into the BIOS, provide the appropriate credentials if you've password protected the BIOS, and disable Secure Boot, and then you can boot anything you like, just like on a PC. But the whole internet exploded as if Apple had just launched some sort of attack against Linux and anyone who might think of ever running Linux on a Mac. It's like, no, that's not true. It wasn't true of Windows. It isn't true of Apple. I don't understand why these stories get wings, but clickbait, I guess. So that's the first Does, one, easy to knock on the head. Let, let me ask a, uh, a question. That So that means you can't make a bootable ISO of Linux and reboot into it? Unless you disable secure boot. Hmm. Right, you can only boot something which is either if you have secure boot enabled, you can only boot Apple OSs. This is so really you, powerful protection from booby trapping, right? So you said two different things at one point. You said cryptographically signed and then cryptographically signed by Apple. Could it be cryptographically signed but not by Apple and secure boot secure boot boot or not? 
Probably do you not. mean secure boot as in inside the T2 chip, or do you mean secure boot mm-hmm. as in the general concept? The general concept. The general concept, it's basically whoever is public key is baked into your firmware. That's the public key that will okay. be used to verify the booting OS. Okay, gotcha. Okay. So basically it comes down to what's in your in your key, in your trust store. So the chip has a bunch of known public keys burned into it at a hardware level, and it will use those keys to verify the digital signatures. So in Apple's case, the only keys burned into Apple's T2 are Apple's keys. And on the PC industry, I'm assuming there's a massive big committee and a whole big process to get keys put in there because that's okay. how things work in the PC world. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think I follow. Yeah. It's basically uh, well, public key crypto. It's the same as your browser, right? It has a list of known trusted certs that it uses as trust anchors. And in this case, you have known trusted certs burned in as your trust anchors. And anything that validates against those trust anchors is okay. So another dumb question, you talked about uh, Touch ID being in the secure enclave on the phone and the mm-hmm. newer uh, devices have the T2 chip. Mm-hmm. What about the older Macs that have uh, Touch Bar that have uh, Touch ID? That's probably uh, secure enclave also? Yes, that's why they have that little iOS computer. Oh, right? okay, That little but... screen is basically a little funny iPhone. It has okay. a little A-series processor in there. Okay. So to, to some extent, that touch bar was just a way of, well, if we have to have an iOS running, why not have it do something cool? And then I think Apple thought better of it and went, you know something, why don't we just make a separate chip? So now they don't need touch bar, they can just do touch ID. <laughs> yeah, and as much as I wanted to like the touch bar, I don't think it's been a massive success. Yeah. I'm I'm not finding a need for it. I don't dislike yeah. it or anything. I just don't is seem worth, to need it. Yeah, is it worth the extra few hundred bucks that Apple inevitably have to charge by putting a very high-resolution touch screen that almost yeah. no one looks at or touches? Right, right. It's a pity, because in the abstract, I love it. But in reality, I think it's it's a dud. Anyway. Um, but yeah, that's why that's there. It's because they needed somewhere to put the, the, the secure enclave. So the hence the little A-series processor hiding in that touch bar. Now, in order to actually have proper end-to-end security for your hardware disk encryption and for your Touch ID and stuff, you need to make sure that you cannot have any sort of... Basically, you have to cryptographically verify... The, all the endpoints that are physically connected together to each other so that you know that you have the, the hardware hasn't been tampered with. Because if someone were to physically tamper with it, they could steal the unencrypted data as it flows through. So there's actually a pairing that happens between the T2 chip and the hard drive or between the T2 chip and the motherboard, which means that if you want to take your laptop apart yourself and put in a new CPU or something, you can't. Because the T2 chip is going to go, auga, auga, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't trust anything anymore. Okay. So if you're the kind of person who wants to desolder your laptop, don't get one with a T2 chip. Its security will prevent you from doing that. Well, won't it just stop having the security that it had? It won't stop doing everything, will it? I'm pretty sure it won't boot because Apple have not designed these devices for you to take a soldering iron to them. Because okay. the percentage of people who want to do that is about zero. It's not zero. It's within a rounding error of zero. <laughs> Hence the word about. Yeah. But it's like, you know, 10 people probably. Like, I mean, it, it, people don't take MacBooks and pull them apart. And the Mac Mini, right, the RAM is not part of this. 
right? RAM being by its very nature ephemeral, it doesn't need this kind of protection because, you know, RAM doesn't hang around. So you can change the stuff you really care about most in the new Mac minis, which is the RAM. That's not affected by this. It's only if you start pulling apart, pulling stuff off the motherboard that's soldered in place that you start running into these problems. So maybe not being able to do the SSD? Hmm. Yes, definitely not the SSD because you have this hardware disk encryption. So basically, swings and roundabouts. The swing is amazing security on your disk. The roundabout is the only way to get your disk replaced is to go to an authorized Apple repair shop. Not even okay. Apple themselves. Any authorized repair shop has the tools to do the cryptographic pairing. That's what makes them an authorized repair shop. So you're basically limited to not going off the reservation, which is exactly where you're limited if you believe in warranties or if you believe in Apple Care. Yeah, I was going to say, um, AppleCare becomes even more interesting under these circumstances. Steve just had the SSD go out in his iMac, and uh, it was a $42 repair charge, but the combined cost of the SSD and the repair would have been $1,400. Yeah, AppleCare makes a lot, a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know it's an insurance policy, and I know they're probably making bank on it, but I get my money's worth out of that stuff. Might have been twelve hundred. I I forget, but close enough. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm either breaking even or slightly ahead in terms of my Apple Care over the years. Yeah, you know, it's 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 just nice to have, and not and the peace of mind it gives you is just that has a value too. And so if you calculate that, right. in, it's an easy it's an easy thing for me. Right. I think so, so basically, th- those are the takeaways, right? So the security is only possible if you have cryptographic pairing of hardware components. And you can only do that with tools from Apple, which means you have to have been verified by Apple as not being an evil so-and-so. In other words, you have to be an authorized repair shop to be able to do this. So that is, I mean, that is the classic privacy versus convenience trade-off. To me, these computers are not tinkerboxes. These are app consoles. And to me, this is just not a trade-off that I'm going to lose any sleep over whatsoever. But we'd need to point out to people, if you're the kind of person who thinks they're ever going to take a soldering iron to their Mac, don't buy one with a T2 chip. Right. Interesting. So for all of our listeners, go ahead and buy one with a T2 chip. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a day when I found that to be really fun, but I haven't tried to do it in a long time. And well, I, I, think I have Tinker machines, right? I have a ye olde ATX case with a motherboard in it that I bought, with RAM in it that I bought, with a CPU in it that I bought, with room for ten hard drives that I'm now that currently I'm experimenting with uh, FreeNAS on it. I oh. used to run my own Linux on it. Like I have Tinker boxes. I don't feel any need to do that to my Macs. <laughs> well, I was thinking about, I had an old uh, MacBook that I turned into a Chromebook for a neighbor mm. kid because it couldn't be upgraded to the latest OS. But I guess in that case, you wouldn't care that you'd gotten rid of secure boot because the OS wasn't secure anymore anyway. Yeah, exactly. So you yeah. just go in, disable secure boot, run Chrome in it and have fun. All right. Yeah, so I'm basically I don't now. see why people are losing their ever-loving mind, but it had the word Apple in it, so... <laughs> Three, two, one, scandal! And a chance to say they were evil and, and malicious and trying to take more of our money. Pretty much, pretty much. Yep. So, that they're all follow-ups. We have one security medium for this week, um, which is 
a fancy pants attack with a name. And so we obviously have to talk about it. The name is Port Smash, which actually <laughs> sounds quite cool. Now, the TLDR version is no need to panic, just a patch to stay secure. Right, that is where we're going to end up in this conversation. As a normal home user who is not running Amazon, just apply the Windows slash Mac updates as and when they come in, and you'll be grand. But of course, this is the Nasilla cast, so we're going to go a little deeper than that. So this is a side channel attack that breaches what's called process isolation on Intel CPUs. So in theory, two processes running at the same time should not be able to see... Actually, two processes, period, should not be able to see into each other's stuff, right? Whether they're running at the same time or not doesn't matter. Processes are not supposed to be able to see each other's stuff. They're supposed to have privacy from each other. That's kind of the basis of our whole security model. But Spectre and Meltdown showed that speculative execution has side effects, and you can use those side effects to indirectly infer the content of other threads. And that's what's going on with Port Smash as well. So the end result is the same as Spectre and Meltdown. One process can learn things about another process that it absolutely shouldn't be able to learn. So the effect is the same. The mechanism is totally different. So Port Smash has nothing to do with speculative execution. It instead exploits another cool feature that was used to try and make our modern CPUs give more power without having to actually put more silicon onto the chip because we sort of run into a problem there. We can't make our chips any smaller because, well, quantum physics has gotten in the way. So have you ever heard of something called hyperthreading? Absolutely. Hyperthreading is what's a, a, what's the problem here? Or hmm. yeah, hyper. It's basically this is a shortcoming of hyperthreading. So today we're used to the concept of having a CPU with multiple cores, and so when you have multiple cores, it's actually multiple CPUs in one. So you right. have an entire CPU sitting next to another entire CPU, and it's literally doing two things at once, like completely parallel multitasking is going on in multiple cores. But before we had multiple cores, we had pretend multiple cores, which they called hyperthreading. So a CPU isn't one big monolithic block. It actually has a whole bunch of functionality. So there's different physical circuitry to do different types of computational task. And one instruction is only one thing. So if you were to sort of imagine like an activity map of a CP, of a single CPU core, you would see one bit of it light up and all the rest of it sitting idle. And then the next instruction comes along and a different bit lights up and all the rest sits idle. And that sounds inherently wasteful, doesn't it? Yeah. So hyperthreading basically says, dear operating system, if you have some tasks that you want to do in parallel that use different parts of the CPU, I'll run them at the same time for you. They just have to use different parts of the CPU. Okay. That's called hyperthreading. So it looks like you're doing two things at once, but you're only able to do that assuming they're not in conflict with each other. And so it gave us an interesting halfway house where we got to have multi-core performance-ish without a multi-core. And even now that we have multi-cores, we've still left hyperthreading in place. So two cores acts like four. But that makes sense to keep doing it, right? Exactly. It makes sense. Otherwise, it's just empty space, you know, empty resources, unused resources, and Intel hate unused resources because, well, the CPU could go faster if we used all of its resources all of the time. 
hence hyperthreading. Now, why is it called port smash? For reasons I don't like understand. The ones you've talked before, you've talked about something where. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of something where the RAM talk to each other. I'm thinking that was Rowhammer. Rowhammer, par- parallel that's it. rows in the literally parallel rows in the actual memory chips would electronically bleed into each other. That was that was Rowhammer. Rowhammer port smash. They're all starting to sound alike, aren't they? They kind of do, yeah, because basically violent sounds. Smash! Hammer! (laughs) So, for reasons I don't quite understand, these different regions of the CPU, Intel didn't call them regions or subprocessors. They called them ports. So the CPU has multiple ports, and hyperthreading allows processes that use different ports to run in parallel with each other. So port smash is basically exploiting hyperthreading. Hyperthreading is just saying, I can use two ports at once. So that's why it's called port smash. So for this attack to work, the bad guy's thread and the victim thread have to be sharing the same physical core. So they have to be being hyperthreaded at that moment in time. On the same core at that instant. On the same core at the same time. So again, if you're a regular home user, the only way this happens is if your machine is already running malware. Okay. In which case, you're in exactly the same position with all, like we are with the Spectre and Meltdown stuff. You have a much bigger problem. Your machine's running malware. But if you're in a virtual environment, what you do not want is that someone else's VM can see into your stuff. And so the fix here is actually very simple. There's a blunt hammer approach, which the cloud providers were able to do instantly. Disable multi-threading and the whole problem goes away. But now you have less efficiency. So that was a blunt hammer that was used briefly. And the proper solution is also very simple. So operating one of an operating system's most important jobs is to schedule process, or to schedule execution of the CPU. So there's lots of apps running at the same time, and it's the operating system's job to give each of them access to the CPU to a CPU as and when it can. And the idea is you keep all the, you you know, you give everyone a little sip of CPU and it appears like they're all running in perfect parallel all the time. Keep the balls in the air, juggle, juggle, juggle. That's what the operating system does. All we have to do here is add an extra rule. If two processes don't belong to the same app, they're not allowed to share the same core. Oh, that seems obvious (laughs) in retrospect. So if you imagine a modern app like Microsoft Word even, which is not that modern when you think about it, it's not one process. There's a spell checker running in the background. There's something running to render your stuff. There's something running to synchronize you up with Office 365. There's lots of parallel processes that make up Microsoft Word. They can safely share a CPU core. Pad a problem. So the OS just has to be a little bit more clever about how it schedules stuff. And it basically says, if you're going to share a core, then you need to be this, you need to be related to each other. And in terms of virtual machines, basically, if you guys belong to the same VM, you're allowed to share a core. If you guys belong to different VMs, you're absolutely, positively never allowed to share a core. Problem solved. <laughs> so it's just update your scheduling algorithm. Carry on. And are you going to tell us that uh, Windows and uh, and Mac OS have been updated? Not yet, but they will, which is why I stay patched and say secure is the answer. So as and when Windows <laughs> updates come out, apply them. And remember, as home users, this doesn't really have an effect on us. What matters is that people like Amazon and stuff are updating, but they don't use Windows, right? 
those big server farms are running very, very bespoke hardware and software. So they have gone in and they have done this themselves, right? Oh, Either okay. by disabling hyper-threading until they have a better fix. But right, they're not running off-the-shelf OSs because they are doing the most amazing hmm. computing out there. So they basically have either disabled multi-threading or have updated their schedulers. Okay. Would this be, I know a while ago you talked about maybe not using a cloud provider that nobody's ever heard of? Yes. And that, that, to be honest, that advice is always going to be good because <laughs> even if you ignore these kind of exotic bugs, a cloud provider you've never heard of, how confident are you they're applying the software updates that, say, VMware put out or that Red Hat put out? or that Microsoft put out. I mean, you know, whatever virtualization platform they're using, there's going to be software updates for it. How confident are you they're applying those if you've never heard of them? There's some sort of fly-by-night operation. And then leave aside Meltdown and Spectre and Port Smash and Rowhammer and all of these named bugs, right? So My cousin Jimmy's running his own server farm, though, Bart. I'm sure he's he's all over this. He's real smart. (laughs) Yes. Of course he is. So yeah, the advice stands regardless of these exotic bugs, but these exotic bugs are yet another reason for that advice to stand. So basically, don't set your hair on fire, it's grand. All right. Kind of cool, though. At a nerdy level, it's kind of cool. But Yeah, yeah, it really is. Okay, so with all that said, let's get into the normal news. Uh, updates. Patch Tuesday has been and gone. We have critical updates from Microsoft and Adobe for stuff like Windows Flash, Reader, and Acrobat. Basically, the usual. Uh, Google have released their November update for Android. Lots of important security fixes in there. If you're an Android user who has the ability to update themselves, please do so ASAP. If not, you do know you have a problem, don't you? <laughs> Find your nearest recycling center. Yeah, and change to an Android device that is updatable. Thankfully, there's improvement here because Google is putting pressure on people. It is getting better, but you're a long way from where us Apple users are, where Apple put an update and we get it 30 seconds later. Just take right. it. Anyway, um, there, ha- there was discovered a serious cross-site scripting vulnerability in Evernote for Windows. It has Ooh. been patched. So if you are an Evernote for Windows user... When it says, would you like to install this update? The answer is yes. Yes, you would. And then finally, because, well, A, WordPress runs a third of the internet, and B, a lot of our listeners are WordPress users, and C, we're WordPress users, um, I, I sort of like to keep up to date with WordPress news. And in this case, it's WordPress plugins that are the issue here, not WordPress itself. Uh, two particularly popular plugins have had critical security bugs that have been patched, Assuming, of course, you update them. So they would be WooCommerce, which is probably the biggest open source shopping cart plugin. And a plugin called WPGDPR Compliance. You can Uh imagine why that one might be popular. Yeah. Here's a plugin. Push the button. You're compliant. Yeah, pretty much. So if you have WordPress, log in, update your plugins, carry on with life. Stay patched. Stay secure. <laughs> I feel like I should have that as like a little thing on soundboard. I can just push a button on. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You really, you really should have a recording. Actually, if if you're ever uh, sick and you can't actually do the uh, show notes, you should just send me keep a recording of that where I can just go. So Bart's out today, but here's what he has to say. Stay patched. Stay secure. Carry on. 
It's possible I could find a sound clip of you doing it in an emergency. You just might have access to such a thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of notable news, uh, the mobile variant of Pwn to Own was run. Um, news of this came out just as we were about to record. All the mobile OSs got pwned, of course, because that's how Pwn to Own works. Uh, but the one that's gathering all the headlines is an iOS bug, which makes it possible to undelete a deleted photograph on the very latest version of iOS. So expect Apple to patch that soon. I was going to say, that'd be handy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, it might be useful sometimes. Yeah. But probably not a feature, really. Um, definitely a bug. Uh, security researchers have found a botnet of over 100,000 routers, which was built by exploiting old vulnerabilities in home routers. Vulnerabilities mm. that have been patched for years. So, if mm. you have a home router, please check it for software updates. And if it's not getting updates from the vendor anymore, it's time to contact your local recycling center, uh, <laughs> deposit your old router, and pick up a new one. Because really, the days of being able to get away with an insecure router are over. These things are being very actively attacked. And you are a menace to society because these botnets can do real harm to the whole internet. I just thought of something. You know, I'm really, really good about checking my routers. And I've got got, um, reminders set up once a month to go out and look for it. And sometimes it says there isn't one. But then I get a notice from Netgear that says there is anyway. It's like, well, why didn't you tell me what? for it. But anyway, I'm really good about that. But I can't remember the last time I checked to see if my Verizon router, which is now my Frontier router, is actually getting patched. Because I don't ever talk to it, you know? Hopefully most of the ISPs are on the bandwagon of auto-updating routers. That is yeah, becoming more the norm. I assume that though, huh? Yeah, well, yeah, assumption is probably not a good idea there. Check it, and if it is auto-updating itself, you know, take a note of the version numbers, log in a month later, take a note of the version numbers, and if you see them change automatically, okay, good, they have your back. (laughs) Yeah, they have your back, it's all good. Or I guess you could ring them and ask tech support, but if my experience with ISPs is anything to go by, that's a complete waste of your time. Um. There is also, um, this seems to be a trend now where people throw the rattle out of the pram and have a good old rant about how terrible the security industry is and then just drop zero days on the planet because they're too cranky with the bug bounty programs that are out there. So we had a few Windows ones recently. Now we have one in Oracle's VirtualBox. Thankfully, there is a very simple workaround. It's just a matter of changing a few settings and you can work your way around this bug. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're using VirtualBox at home and you're not using VirtualBox to run known dangerous software as a sort of like a lab for testing known bad stuff, this is probably not a really a problem anyway. But the workaround is simple, so read, read the link in the show notes if this matters to you. Okay. Um, a study from Oxford University in the UK has... F- so we talked last time about ads in apps for children. Well, this is a different study by a different university. That was an American university that we talked about last time. This is now Oxford in the UK. And they had a slightly different question. They weren't interested in ads. They were interested in trackers. And they were curious how many trackers are embedded in children's apps in the Google Play Store. Now, these guys were quite thorough. They downloaded one million apps based on what both the US and UK Google Play Stores. And they found that the average number of trackers in children's apps is seven. Not one in seven apps have a tracker. The average app has seven trackers. 
<sighs> I mean, what a cesspool. <laughs> we didn't hear this last time? No, last time it was about ads. <laughs> Do, yeah. It just yeah. gets better and better, doesn't it? Yeah. So anyway, sorry. Now we switch to the good news. There's all the bad news out of the way, right? We're done with bad news. We now flip to the good news column. And I've been very careful to write my show notes that way around. Sometimes I make a mistake, but I think I got it right this time. Okay. Google have released version three of their recapture tool. And this, this new version takes the whole capture thing to a whole new level. So you probably remember that Google Google were first to have a really effective capture. So the, the point of a capture is to differentiate between humans and robots. And the first one, was Google's recapture was really good at it initially. And it, it was used to translate books. So they would show you some mushed up text and get you to convert it. And then they would use that to OCR books with humans, basically. And that was replaced with version 2 of reCAPTCHA. And version 2 added some brains where it would most of the time be able to tell whether you were human or not just by how you moved the mouse and what cookies you had set yeah, and I things like that. that. And so that became a simple checkbox, I am not a robot, which people mocked mercilessly because they didn't understand what was going on. And if it didn't believe you, it would pop up a thing, a grid with images and make you, you know, click on every one that has a car in it or whatever. So that was version two. So whenever it could, it didn't annoy you, apart from saying, please tick this box to say, I am not a robot. Version three takes that same idea of getting out of the way, but it takes it to a whole new level. So all the other captures up until now have been a binary system, right? Dear human, you must now prove to me you're not human, and I will give a yes or no answer to the website. Yes, I believe this person is a human. No, I do not. Binary. True, false, pass, fail. And it was always the user had to do something. Even if it was only ticking the I'm not a robot box, the user still had to do something. The user was presented with someone, the user took an action, and then the capture tool decided whether or not to tell the website thumbs up, thumbs down. All of that gets thrown away with reCAPTCHA 3. It's all behind the scenes JavaScript stuff where it's watching what you do. And Google is very good at watching what you do. So this is one of those cases where, hey, at least they're using all of their creepiness for good instead of for evil. (laughs) And I have mixed feelings about it. But the big change here is that what the website has told, what the API spits out. So an API is like a black box, right? Input in, output out. The output out was always thumbs up, thumbs down. Now the output out is a confidence score. Between, I, th- I believe it's in a scale from 0 to 10, where it tells the website You're a little how confident, bit of a robot, not that robot-y, just a little I'm bit I'm not robot-y. sure. I'm not sure. I'm very sure. It's basically like spam detection works. Okay. And then on different pages within a web app, the web developer can make different decisions. So maybe on the page oh. to thumbs up or thumbs down, you're not all that bothered and you'll accept anything above a 6. But on your sign-up page, maybe you insist on a high confidence. And so you block sign-ups from people who you think even might be a robot. And so Hmm. every developer now gets to choose, not all or nothing, but this is okay on this page, but on this other page, this is not okay. So it again, it gets much more out of the way and allows, you know, the user will see much, much less of this. So again, I really like where Google are going with this, even though it is all based on being creepy. But, you know, sometimes these things are for the better. I wonder uh, whether that gives the web developers, not everyone, 
Not every web developer is brilliant and would think through all of this. You know, my cousin Jimmy over there running his uh, his uh, AWS clone, I'm not sure he's smart enough to be checking it out and saying which one they should do. That's, well, I wonder. Interestingly, at the moment, this is being, this is being pushed by Google as something you use in addition to ReCAPTCHA 2. Oh. So, no, well, I guess that's okay, because you don't know about this one, right? Exactly. We so don't have to actively do background. anything. Yeah. So basically, mm-hmm. on your pages where you're not, where, where you're interested in managing the risk, you'll use the invisible recapture three, and then on the ones where you really, really care, you might use recapture three, and then if that fails, then you go, okay, fine. Here's a recapture two. I'm going to make you prove it. Yeah. Okay. So, I was hoping you, know, you were going to say we wouldn't have recapture two anymore, though. I'm real tired of telling you. Uh, whether there's a sidewalk. I don't know. I can't you tell the difference. Less. You know, it's got a little bit of it. You should see less. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. Because web developers now have a way of only showing that to you when they have no choice. So basically, they may decide, I just, I'm sorry, but if you're going to sign up here, I really do need to be confident. So recapture three is giving me a score of seven. I'm not happy with that. Here's a recapture two. But if you come okay. in with a score of 10 out of 10, it'll go, yeah, whatever, sell through. Oh, You'll never okay. even know what happened. Okay. So, it, again, it will lessen but not remove to zero. But that's fine. Less is good. Yeah. Uh, good, more good news in the Google column. Um, Google have made some UI changes to their search so that it's easier to get to your privacy settings from right within the search interface. This, this I like. This is sensible. Put in the controls for things in the thing they control. That's good. <laughs> Google are also continuing their crackdown on dodgy ads. They have a new policy. If you are the owner of a website and that website hosts an ad which meets Google, well, it's not Google's definition, it's the advertising association who Google happens to be a major member of's definition of what a malicious ad is. If you have an ad that plays naughty, you will be given a 30-day ultimatum to fix your website or from that point on, Google Chrome will block all ads on your website. Wow. That is a very, very, very strong disincentive. Powerful hammer. Yeah. So you're saying if I've got dodgy ads from um, adclickbait.com hosted by my cousin Jimmy on his AWS clone, and I also want Google ads, you're saying they would block me from using Jimmy's ads? uh, No, 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 I'm sorry. They would take away your ability to use their ads. No, it's worse than that. Anyone who browses to your website in Chrome will see no ads they google will block all ads on your site for anyone using their browser not their ad platform their browser oh okay so i'm not even trying to make money off google or sorry jimmy isn't even trying to make money off google ads he's using dodgy mcdodgerson advertising limited right right because they pay way better because they have no scruples by the way it's his side business that's his brother uh uh you know frank that runs that yeah yeah, so, I mean, that is quite the hammer. If you try to monetize your site with ads that misbehave, all Chrome users, and Chrome is the most popular browser at the moment, all Chrome users it will is? have all ads on your site blocked. Yes, it is not. It is the plurality, not the majority. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, actually, no. On desktop, I think that's true. Okay. Oh, but if wait you, a minute, if wait you a Android, Android. No, okay, Android. no, you're, you're no, right, no, no, right? You're if right. you if you take iOS Safari and combine it with desktop Safari, then they together win. 
I think so, because there's so many Android phones that aren't surfing, but they would have Chrome. I thought, it, but I thought it was Chrome, iOS. Right? They may use Firefox. Yeah. I will look that up while you keep anyway, going. But th- Chrome is a major browser. To- How about we say it this way? Chrome is a big browser with a lot, a lot of users. So certainly having yeah. every user of Chrome see zero ads on your website, that will cost you money. That will hit you in your pocketbook. So there are people who are now saying, well, that's certainly in Google's best interest. It's also in our best interest. This is one of those cases where Google... I Just because it like helps it. them doesn't mean it's wrong for us, right? Exactly. There are times when it's win-win. You know, I like it when incentives align between me and the company. <laughs> yeah. Then they're likely to do what I want because it's in their interest too. Makes <laughs> right, it much easier. Right. Now, the last two stories I have here, I've sort of lumped them together because I think they're related. They have a holiday theme. Uh, LastPass released a list which they're calling their naughty or nice list. And this is, they were ranking websites that sell things, so retailers. And they basically ranked the top five best retailers in terms of security and privacy and the bottom five worst retailers in terms of uh, (laughs) privacy. So Hmm. the top of the good list is Apple. And the bottom of the bad list is Wayfair. Oh, no. I love Wayfair. I buy everything there. I've never even heard of them. They're not international. Oh, they sell stuff for... uh, My dining room uh, chairs are from there. My dining room... uh, I've got a uh, table there. I've got a big artwork thing. Well, drive over and pay in cash in your grand. (laughs) Right? It's all online. (laughs) Oh, okay. Oh, bummer. Sorry. But maybe they'll maybe they'll improve by next year because I can't imagine this is particularly good for them. Yeah. Well, now you you then link me up to something cool that the good people at Mozilla have done. So a lot of people will be giving and receiving tech gadgets this holiday season. And some of those tech gadgets will be fantastic at protecting your privacy and security. And some of them will be god awful at it. It would be nice to know before you hit buy which category your particular device falls into. So the good people of Mozilla have published a list of tech that gets their thumbs up approval for not being privacy security nightmares. I think this is fantastic. Uh, by the way, I, I, uh, I'm going to give credit again to Tom Merritt because I saw it on the Daily Tech News show. No, but I thought okay, it was we're right passing up on the credit. You, you passed it on to me. I hadn't seen it. You sent it on to me. So you get credit for me and you're then choosing to pass it on to Tom. Fair enough. <laughs> Show the love. Show the love. Yeah, I, I yes. thought that was kind of fun. That was It was kind of along the lines of what we were hoping to eventually see with the IoT rules, right? That yes. there'd be some sort of badge on them that would tell you, yeah, this one at least meets minimum security standards. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's good. Okay, so suggested reading. PSA's tips and advice. Two here I'm going to draw people's attention to. If you live in the United States of America, you should probably read Brian Krebs's article about something he's talked about before. UP, the U.S. Postal Service has this thing where they can scan your physical post and email you pictures of it before it actually arrives. And unfortunately, there's some abuses happening of that system. And the U.S. Secret Service are now warning that ID thieves are actually abusing this system at the moment. So there is some simple advice for how you protect yourself. Basically, you register so that the bad guys can't. So yeah, you need to register for every that name one. that receives post oh. at your address. Not just Jeez. you, you and Steve in your case. 
I think the uh, trick that they were doing was they would apply for a credit card in your name, then they would sign up for the service in your name, Mm -hmm. and they would know when it was being delivered and been delivered to your house, and so they could go take it out of the mail. Yeah, because they... Yeah, so it is useful to bad guys to know when your post arrives. I think I tried to sign up for that the first time you told us about it because there was some sort of problem with it, and I was never able to crack the code on getting it done. Well, Somebody's the, priority it signed rolled up out for in stages. So initially, <laughs> you would have needed to be within certain postal codes and stuff for it to work for you. So I believe it's now fully rolled out countrywide or nationwide. Okay. Sorry. I, again, I can't play with this firsthand because uh, not my country. <laughs> um, there was a, this is sort of a the next suggested reading is technically from the UK, but the advice is really sound. Um, so there was recently a major conference here in Ireland for all of the IT people in all of the universities to get together once a year for a big conference. And there was a very good presentation at that conference by the Irish Police Force on Garda Síochána on cybersecurity that affects students. And mm. one of the things to come out of that talk was a link to a really nice help page from JISC, which is a UK-based academic institution. They're sort of like a, an umbrella group for academic institutions. And it's a really nice, straightforward little read. How can students easily protect themselves against cybercrime? And the advice is just universal, right? You don't have to be a UK student for this to matter to you. So, What makes students more susceptible to cybercrime? Why would there be something different for them than somebody who's not learning anything? Um, Arguably, it's not so much different, but it does bear, it does take in mind that there are trends, right? So in Ireland at the moment, there is a concerted attempt to recruit students to become unwitting money mules Mm. because they need the money and just today (laughs) so this was a big thing at a security conference last week and uh, we 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 chatted we chatted about it among ourselves in work and then we it just so happens we had uh, security awareness training this week and we chatted about it again at security awareness training and literally an hour after we finished our security awareness training, a news story broke on the Irish Times about a student having been acquitted of money laundering despite having actually done it, but the judge basically let her off and basically went, you know you are very stupid, right? <laughs> and so basically the link was just posted with with the one sentence, oh my God, it's real. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this is a thing. And so... You're right. Anyone can fall victim to these same things, but there are certain ways in which students are being targeted at the moment. So it's huh. and it's good advice for everyone. Yeah. Um, there's some notable breaches, but they're not really worth calling out. So what's the next thing I have a star next to? Ah, yes, I need to say a thank you to listener Dorothy. This is a recommendation of a podcast episode. Mm. It's an hour long show, so it's not a quick one. And it comes with the slight warning that it's not going to make you feel good, but it is going to make you feel like you understand better. Hmm. It's basically called The Snapchat Thief. And it's the story about one person's Snapchat account being stolen. That's the thread that it started on and is pulled. And from there, we discover, along with the reporters, we basically we follow them on their journey of discovery into the dark underbelly of the internet... And we get to meet the kind of people who go around stealing people's accounts and the kind of things they can do to you and how they go about their thing. And basically, 
all of these weirdo cyber criminals we keep hearing about, you actually get to understand at least a little bit of who they are, what they do, how they so do they what they do. So they actually have them on the show? Yeah, they managed to. They actually managed to get them to chat on Discord. Actually, as it happens. Oh wow! So it's it's fascinating because they they don't jump to the end. They you 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 go on the journey, right? So it's hmm. the podcast uh, is is called Reply All. It's episode one hundred and thirty, and it basically starts with a listener basically saying, "My Snapchat got hacked. How did that happen?" And they investigate, and down the rabbit hole they go, and it's wow. it's an hour long, but it's absolutely fascinating so Dorothy a fantastic recommendation thank you and the show is called Reply All episode 130 The Snapchat Thief yep it's from Gimlet Media who do a lot of good podcasts Uh, one that caught my eye because it's it's kind of a big deal again it came up a lot during our security awareness training Um, we know you know very well because you read the NIST guidelines you know very well that SMS two-factor auth is not desirable. It is the lowest form of two-factor auth. It is better than no two-factor auth, but it is the lowest form of two-factor auth. And the reason is because of something called SIM swapping. And uh, Brian Krebs has a really interesting Q&A with some experts in the field where they talk about the ins and outs of SIM swapping. So it's called busting SIM busting SIM swatters. Let me say that again. Busting SIM swappers and SIM swap myths. Huh. So it's, an, it's, in, it's basically, it talks to law enforcement people who prosecute these people and they talk about exactly how they do what they do. It's, it, it's, a, it's a good insightful article. Again, not short, but it's a good insightful article from Brian Krebs. And after you read it, you're going to go, okay, so I won't be using SMS two-factor auth anymore. <laughs> Except for the fact that it's every single one of my banks does. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. Unless it is the only two-factor auth, I will not be <laughs> using SMS-based two-factor auth. Right. Because it's still better than none. If the choice is SMS or nothing, SMS still wins, even if it has many known flaws. Uh, and finally, I just want to draw your attention to one story in the propeller beanie territory because it's fun. Um, so a security researcher wondered whether it would be possible to steganographically embed information into tweets. So steganography is hiding information in plain sight. And images have been used for that for years, but it's very difficult to do that on something like Twitter because Twitter actually reprocess every image you upload to make it smaller. If you upload a big file, they're going to resize it to a small file because it saves them a fortune on server space when you do that in the aggregate, right? Billions of people posting millions of images every day. If you shave them all by 5%, you have saved terabytes of storage. Okay. But that means that if you try to do traditional steganography on the image, the fact that the image is getting transformed is going to obliterate your message. So this guy had this idea. I think he was in the shower. <laughs> That's where my best ideas come. It's, oh, it's, 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 it's the shower or the thing near the shower also made of porcelain. Um, this is where good ideas come from or occur. Anyway, he sort of thought, well, images don't only contain pixels. Images also contain metadata. And yes, Twitter strip out some metadata, like, say, the GPS coordinates, which is very nice of them to do. But they don't strip out all metadata. Something they explicitly do not strip out is the ICS profile, which, in theory, its job in life is to contain color space information. But the spec is big. The spec allows for 
all sorts of metadata that get put into ICS profiles. And actually, you can put anything you want into an ICS profile. Hmm. And Twitter will never delete an ICS profile. So to prove his point, he embedded the entire works of William Shakespeare into an image, posted it to Twitter, and was able to pull out the entire works of Shakespeare because none of it got destroyed by the image transformations. Wow. That's cool. Exactly. So it's in Propeller Bean if you want to dig in deeper. But I just thought it was too fun not to share. Um, one of the one I didn't quite put a star next to, but I probably should have in hindsight. There is... Work is progressing very well on the next version of the HTTP protocol, HTTP 3. Hmm. And it is the headline from Naked Security. I love their headlines. Come for the speed, stay for the security. <laughs> it focuses on being really quick, but encryption is not optional. HTTP 3 is forced TLS, version 1.3 or higher. So what does that mean? That means good security on all HTTPS 3 connections. Sorry, HTTP 3 connections will be fast and secure. Huh. Okay. That's great. Building security... That's a spec, right? Yes. Okay. It's a spec that's still under development, which is why it's not in the news section. It will at some stage get published, and then we will talk about it as a proper... Then do we take all the S's off and go back? No. (laughs) No, you're still gonna they're still gonna show the S. It's just that every single HTTP three connection will be secure. There will be no such okay. thing as an insecure HTTP three connection. But the whole internet is not gonna stop supporting HTTP one or HTTP two. Although ironically, it probably will stop supporting HTTP two because that was a flop. It exists today Google in theory. Will. Well, actually, so Google invented HTTP two SPDY Speedy, discovered it was a terrible idea, and abandoned it from Chrome. So right now, we're actually all using HTTP 1, even though HTTP 2 exists, and now they're working on HTTP 3. Huh. And it's also a Google okay. protocol, but this one gets rid of TCP. It's based on UDP. It's an interesting idea. Anyway, fast and secure. I'm liking where they're going with this. Nice. That then brings us to palate cleansers. Um, many, many Nocilla castaways forwarded me on the same tweet, which I've sort of called a GDPR Christmas song. Um, oh. <laughs> Do, do you want to do, do do you want to do the reading out loud bit since I'm so bad at it? I do, uh I will have to go look at the tweet. Well okay so the tweet itself is a picture but above the the picture is some text. Santa is facing a fine of up to 4% of his global turnover. Poor Santa. Then it's a photograph of a printer that's clearly been tacked onto an office cubicle or something. You know, you he's making a it? list, he's checking it twice, he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is in contravention of Article 4 of the General Data Protection Regulation, EU 2016-679. <laughs> okay, that's pretty funny. <laughs> it genuinely made me lol, and then I had to explain to the whole office why I was lolling randomly. <laughs> okay. So thank you to all of the Nasilla Castaways who thought I would enjoy that. You were correct. I did. <laughs> now, the next one is one I've thrown in here as a palate cleanser because I'm a big physics nerd and this is really cool to me. So the headline is, The Kilogram is Dead, Long Live the Kilogram, and it links to a really nice article on The Verge that is well worth reading. But the uh, the, the, the elevator pitch, basically, it used to be the case that our way of defining a unit was to have, like, a prototype. There was a 
meter that was made out of, I think it was platinum, and it was given to Napoleon, and that was the definition of the meter. And that's a really bad idea because it's very hard to reproduce. And also, if anything ever happens to your official meter because, you know, you knock some atoms off it by moving it around, the length of the meter changes. So there's been a move afoot to replace all units based on a physical artifact with units based on nothing but fundamental constants of the universe. Which is why we now define time in terms of energy transitions of cesium atoms using atomic clocks. Okay. And we had gotten to the point where almost all of them had been taken care of with one clangor of an exception. Its nickname is Le Grand K. Up until a vote, I think the vote was held Friday, which is today. No, tomorrow. Open to hopefully up until the vote that will hopefully pass tomorrow. The definition of a kilogram has been an actual chunk of metal sitting in Paris. Okay. And its nickname is Le Grand K. Okay. That is the definition of a kilogram. It has been really hard to replace that definition with something based only on fundamental forces, fundamental constants. They have found a way. And it is about to be approved by the international uh, standards body. Which means that from probably tomorrow on, the days of our fundamental physics being defined by physical artifacts are over. We will have defined all of the units that make up the SI unit system using science and engineering to be based off fundamental properties of the universe, not off random things. What about inches and feet, Bart? (laughs) Ah, it's interesting you say that. You think you're not on the metric system, don't you? Yes. You're wrong. As of the 19, I think it was the 70s, the official definition of the foot is so many meters, which means it's tied to the same fundamental transitions that the meter is. So you have, what you have is a a wrapper around the metric system. All of the American units are defined in terms of SI units. And all the SI units are about to be defined in terms of fundamental concepts of the universe. So your feet and inches are tied back to fundamental concepts of the universe. I love it. Can we just convert to the things that divide by 10 so I don't have to keep doing so much math? (laughs) It was tried many times over the last few decades in the US, but apparently you don't like it. I guess I didn't get to vote. They never asked me. Actually, speaking of votes, you guys had a vote on bloody summertime. How did that go? You know what? I don't know. I don't remember on uh, Daylight Saving Time. Yeah. I remember the vote was on whether or not to put it in a state where we could eventually possibly think about fixing to make a plan to vote on not doing it. But still it progress wasn't... if you manage to vote yes. Yeah, so I'm still curious. Yeah, I'll have to find out. Um, I do also want to give an update on the Frontier Routers. I found a, uh, I couldn't find a firmware update page. And so I finally found it on the web where it says, That's why we take care of pushing updates directly to your router from our central locations. Here's what you have to do. You do not have to do anything. You don't have to remember to check for updates. You do not have to visit a website to download updates. So Good. Okay. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. 10 out of 10. Good. That is. And thankfully, more and more IoT devices are adopting that model. It's like, okay. You need to combine cryptographic signatures on firmware with auto-updating. Auto-updating without cryptographic signatures is damn dangerous. But you put those two 
simple pieces of technology together and you have a robust solution. Okay, I have two more palate cleansers, believe it or not. This is this is a well-cleansed ca- a well-cleansed palate, a well-cleansed palate. <laughs> right, right. I I can barely love, taste the melt, Spectre meltdown now. Yeah. I love that Backblaze publish stats on the hard drives that blow up. They yeah. are a very big user of hard drives. Hard drives are their whole thing. And whenever I have to buy a new hard drive, I don't really want to have to do my homework. I just want Backblaze to do my homework for me. And so they regularly publish reports four times a year, so quarterly, on all the hard drives they're using, how many of each hard drive they're using, and how many of them failed. Percentage failures and actual raw numbers of failures. And so basically, if I need a four terabyte drive, I'll go to the most recent Backblaze data and look at their four terabyte drives and then buy the one that blew up the least. So do you buy the exact model? I mean, do you go looking yeah. for HGSD, HM, at 55 c No, I just copy and paste the title and stick that into Amazon. <laughs> okay. So, so if it says, you know, a Maxeter, whatever, I'll just stick that in. And generally speaking, you'll find that the brands tend to be like, you know, if one Hitachi drive is doing well, they pretty much all are doing well. Or the other yeah, trend that used to Seagate come out... has been bad. Yeah, the but they look like they've done better. Thank goodness. Yeah, you know, they went yeah. through a real low patch the last time I was buying drives. Because the last time I was buying drives, I I went looking before I went to the Backblaze and I was about to hit buy on a Seagate and I went, wait a second, Bart, you're not following your own rules. And I went to the Backblaze and went, ah, oh my God. And then I bought a Hitachi drive. Actually, <laughs> I am lying here. So the, the Seagate 4 terabyte has 2.28% failures, and all of the Hitachis are less than 1%. They're like 0. 0.27, 0. 0.34. Yeah. So HGS Like whole the number win. percentage failures is bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, still stay away brilliant. from Seagate. Yeah. The other thing that used to come out of that Backblaze data, but it's not there anymore because they, for really obvious reasons, stopped using it, but three terabyte drives were a train wreck. Yeah, I, I actually bought a three terabyte Seagate. It's like, why oh, didn't no. I just take it and drive it over it with a car on my way home? And it was one of those things where I was thinking, okay, which was the bad one on, on the, I don't remember. I think, I think Hitachi was the bad one. I came home and looked at it and went, oh man, shoot me now. Well, it's with three running, terabyte the drives, they were pretty much all bad. It was weird. It was yeah. something about three terabytes that all of the vendors had, like, you know. I think it was something like they squeezed the extra terabyte out of the existing two or something. It was a, it was a yeah. strange one. Basically, so, I think it was the absolute limit of the old tech. And then for the four terabytes and up, it's new tech, which doesn't suck as much. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, so the latest Backplay stories are out. And yeah, then good. final palate cleanser, also thanks to a Nocilla Castaway suggestion. And I just noticed I have to do in all caps in my show notes. That's never a good sign. A <laughs> um, Nocilla Castaway shared this in the Programming by Stealth channel on Slack. It is a tutorial for Linux shell scripting. I have bookmarked it and I will be using it to educate myself because I want to go back. I want to sort of square the circle of Programming by Stealth and... Uh, taming the terminal by doing shell scripting but I'm not ready to do it yet because right now at this minute in time my shell scripting skills suck <laughs> so I need to remedy that and then I can teach it and I am definitely going to be using this as a resource for remedying that problem so it's the Linux shell scripting tutorial at www.shellscript.sh which is a great URL for this tutorial and um, Allison will hopefully very kindly provide the name of the person we're thanking, but I'm it is searching, in a I'm searching. It is Geeko Supremo. Of course it is. 
<laughs> Geek Cluster Primo has given good suggestions before. That is by no means a first. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Very good. good. Yeah, um, we're starting to get a bunch of activity in the Slack and the PBS uh, segment there, uh, channel there. Which is great. There's one about uh, CSS frameworks uh, versus the CSS grid challenging the bootstrap stuff. So that's fun too. That's, oh, also Geeko Supremo. Yes. Yeah, like I say, a good contributor. One, one of our people. Well, literally. Yeah. In the Silicon way. <laughs> All right. Well, my palette is cleansed. I'm uh, fully patched and secure, and so uh, I think we're um, I think we're good to go, aren't we? I think we are indeed good to go. And uh, we we did a bit of rejiggling of the calendar, so we're going to surprise you by being a week early next time. So it's only a week until I get to talk to you again. Yay! We'll see you then, Bart. Indeed. And until then, still remember to stay patched and stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. And we won't have a chit-chat next week, but we will have a Nocillacast next week on Sunday, keeping our 13-plus year streak alive. Troy Shimkus has done a guest review for us, and Bart has graciously agreed to do an extra security bits for us so I don't have to work too hard over the holiday weekend. But still, don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to become a Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Slack group? We're having so much fun in Slack now. Podfeet.com slash Slack. If you still like Facebook, you can join us at Podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to just get in on the chat for the live chat, it's Podfeet.com slash chat. And those Amazon affiliate links are Podfeet.com slash Amazon. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.